Welcome. You're listening to The Pulse, a Merge podcast series that inspires clinical thought leaders to share best practices on their pursuit to delivering standards of care. Here's Todd Budka, founder and CEO of Merge. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Gopi Dandamuni, an electrophysiologist who currently serves as an executive medical director at Franciscan Heart and Vascular Associates. He's deeply involved in the EP community, passionate about conduction system pacing and healthcare economics. He has a unique desire to go fast with precision, which we will dig into further. Welcome, Dr. Gopi. Thank you for joining us today. I wanted to uh, take a minute and just have you share with the audience uh, a little bit about you know your background, where you came from, and how'd you find your way to EP electrophysiology? Todd, yeah, thanks for the opportunity, and it's it's always interesting as I get older and I reflect back of what made me make those decisions that I'm paying the price for today. <laughs> and, uh, EP is a very interesting field. Uh, really, EP is one of those very few fields where you can actually cure people, like somebody has an SVT or somebody has even ventricular tachycardia or anything like that. We can actually do something for them and actually, by the end of the procedure, be confident enough to say you're actually cured from it. And I think that's probably one of the biggest attractions for me about EP uh, has been that ability to feel that level of confidence of telling somebody that, hey, you're, you're cured once and for all, and I don't have to ever see you again, hopefully. Instant gratification uh, probably is pretty addicting, I'm assuming. You know, a complex AFib case or, uh, you know, any sort of supraventricular uh, uh, issues you might have, like ablations. I, I can't imagine uh, being able to fix something. Yeah, the results, like you said, are, are instantaneous right there, right? So you see something like that. It's, it's, it's a sense of euphoria that you accomplished something and all the years of training and all, all the years of yeah, endless calls and lack of sleep and, and all that has actually resulted in this. Uh, so I think as, you, as I get older, I put those in perspective. And the field has changed dramatically, too, from when we yeah. started out to where we are today. It's a totally different field. And in the next 10 years, it's going to look even more different than what when, it is. When, when you think about, you know, the, walking in the shoes of an electrophysiologist. So, you know, it, it, we're a software company, right? So we're hiring people from the Bay Area that may not even know anything about the cardiology space, but technology, right? Software development, more driven on tech, you know, uh, listening to this podcast. And you, you wanted to describe the day of, Electrophysiologist, or even you know you for that matter. Like you wake up, you leave the house, so your phone's probably going off. Like what? What's a typical day for you? So one of the big disconnects in EP is exactly there's a clinical aspect to it, and there's uh, the administrative, the business side to it. And uh, obviously, our allegiance first is always to the patient, and uh, everything else trumps no matter what. What you plan for the day, how things are going to go, patient care, always that's the whole business of medicine is you're in, in the business of taking care of patients. So a typical EP like myself, uh, if I don't put my administrative hat and I just purely think of myself clinical, uh, even my uh, old, younger days when I was just doing full EP at that time, uh, you're coming in into work. Uh, it depends on what your schedule is like. For example, if I'm in the lab, I'm covering the hospital. Uh, you have to come in the morning, talk to your patients. You're starting your procedures. Uh, and these are, uh, you know, depending on what your procedures are, if it's an ischemic VT, it can be a three to four hour marathon sometimes. Sometimes it can go longer. It just depends. Uh, and you have a full schedule uh, on your plate of doing procedures. So usually 
you're back to back to back on cases. Uh, at wow. the same time, uh, you're also covering the hospital. So that means in between cases, you're getting pages uh, or during cases, you're actually getting pages uh, to try to help, whether it's an emergency room or some consultation or somebody who's in heart block that you're going to have to help make decisions on what's the next step or who's available to do what and so on. And in between, while we're doing these cases, usually, because we don't have unlimited resources, we don't have four EP labs our five EP labs. Most places don't have, uh, are not equipped that way. You yeah. have to figure out how do you juggle? I have a whole outpatient schedule that's filled today. And now I have inpatients who have come through and I have to get, get to the inpatient. So where do I put those inpatients? So that's one of the biggest issues we have in EP today, everywhere, almost everywhere is how do you account for inpatient business that comes in that you have to take care of when your whole schedule is already loaded for outpatient business? And, and somehow you have to juggle that part of it while trying to manage patients, uh, whether it be transfers or, or, or something else and, and yeah. so on. So really it comes down to having a, a good team around you that can rely on, uh, in our case, whether it's be fellows or, or, or APPs and, and so on, and our, and our colleagues as well, of how do we collectively manage. It's not anymore of my practice and how I manage. It's uh, collectively our practice and how do we best manage patients on the electrophysiology service with a group of people. It's pretty amazing how uh, you know one individual can be a superstar, but you're 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 only as good as the team you surround yourself with, and and how you execute and and be you know synergistic, right? And uh, th those are always it's all about the people. Yeah, it's all about the right team and the right people. And this doesn't take into account, uh, as an operator who's doing these procedures, the stress of what you're going through that day, trying to juggle all this while you're actually trying to do the case as well. Well, yeah. and I think people, I remember early on, uh, we were doing some fundraising and we visited a, a cardiologist, uh, an electrophysiologist, and they had a time carved out for lunch to sit and, and meet with us, right? And kind of educating one of these investors about more about electrophysiology. And it was comical because uh, they had procedures that morning. They were behind on clinic. We show up, right? <laughs> you got a vendor sitting in your office waiting to talk with you. Um, and while, while cramming food, you know, down their throat to try and eat, um, I think their kid was trying to get in the house and drop the keys down the sewer drain they couldn't get in the house simultaneously so they're trying to figure out how to get the kid in the house and then i think that the vet called because it was time to pick up their dog and it was just this litany of stuff right and and then the nurse not three minutes later was like hey your first patient's here <laughs> yeah i mean the, the the issue with physicians is we've been conditioned for such a long time uh this is what our way of life has been starting all the way from medical school to residency, to fellowships, to your jobs. And, and so we're, we're very much conditioned. And the other thing is we are not good at saying no to certain things. We take on, especially when it comes to patient responsibilities, uh, most of us inherently are there to take care of the patient. And we say, okay, fine, I'll, I'll do it. Okay, go ahead, add on that patient. Okay, fine, I'll stay late. Okay, fine, I'll see this patient. And Unfortunately, when you create the chaos and there's always somebody stepping up and, and, and handling it, uh, you never really create a good structure. And I think partly it's uh, us 
uh, who, who enable that. And that's one of the things in my administrative role I try to create of yeah. understanding uh, there's a body of work that we're responsible for and, and to work, people working to the top of their licenses. Uh, how do we uh, make physicians do physician work? How do we make administrators do administrative work? How do we make clinical support staff there, do their work at the top of their license? Yeah. Uh, those, are, those are the kinds of things that are becoming more and more. We never used to think about those kinds of things. All we used to think about is do your work for today and move on and then uh, do it the next day. But uh, we can't survive anymore in that environment. We have to be a lot more structured and uh, define roles and responsibilities and, and so on. So mm -hmm. I think that's that's the struggle most systems have as we get bigger and bigger and bigger and our volumes grow is how do we handle all this and all this uh, chaos? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you think about um, how you've shifted from uh, uh, all clinical all day to administrative. I mean, are you enjoying that process? Um, and where is more majority of your time now? Is it more administrative or are you still doing procedures and I want to talk to you a little bit about more about the procedures and things that interest you um, in, in the things you're doing today. But, you know, where's your time spent? Is it 50-50 or quote unquote 50-50? Yeah, I mean, it's all arbitrary on paper. Uh, so I'm about 70% administrative, 30% clinical, but I tend to think of myself as 100% administrator or 100% clinical. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I, I tend to, uh, I mean, obviously, like uh, we've talked about, if clinical work is there, it needs to be done and the patients are, are waiting and, and collectively as a group, we're behind and taking care of patients, for example. Uh, I, I stop what I'm doing administratively to try to help out clinically because you know, there's a lot of issues here. Patients are waiting, length of stay, making sure patients are getting the right care at the right time, and, and then yeah. we have to prioritize those kinds of things. But uh, administratively, since I'm in charge for all cardiovascular services, it gives me a totally different perspective of yeah. uh, how uh, decisions are made at the highest level in terms of resource allocation and prioritizing things. I think we all tend to live in our own world. As an EP, I used to live in my own world, uh, taking care of my patients, seeing my clinic patients, having access to the lab, uh, having the right staff and the right equipment. Yeah. But in the context of a large healthcare system, we are 10 hospitals in the Pacific Northwest, uh, uh, you know, our annual revenues, just to give you scope of how big systems are nowadays, about four and a half billion dollars. So we take care of all aspects of healthcare, not just EP. Yeah. And if you're a senior administrator, you're going to have to decide where do I put my allocation of resources. For me, locally, it may make sense. Hey, EP is uh, it's doing well. There's unlimited patient base. We have to take care of patients as uh, uh, good financial sense to invest in EP. But at the same time, I, I make this uh, argument uh, you know, to our, our colleagues that you still need an ID doctor, you still need a rheumatologist, you yeah. still need those support services in your own hospital, uh, even though they may not be high margin services as collectively as, as a system and a, and a community, we have to take care of these patients and we need their help as well. So uh, how do you allocate resources? Uh, yeah. And that, those are the kinds of things that I've learned over time. Uh, there's a bigger picture in play and, and, and also locally how to advocate for your resources. Part of that is learning in a limited resource environment. Uh, you have to be good in how you make your arguments and, and, and prove 
uh, to your system why it's worthwhile to invest in, in justification <laughs> yeah, absolutely and return on investment and all that yeah. so those are challenges that we those are some of the um, talents that we don't develop as physicians because again we're one track mind of taking care of patients and uh, doing sure. well with what we do our quality our outcomes patient care but uh, this is a whole new way of looking at healthcare because those are the kinds of environments we all work in now. We don't have our own practices anymore where we set up the way we want that works for us. We work in, a, in an employed model of care that has certain rules and a structure that we have to work in and learn how to navigate it and, and yeah. all that uh, chaos, controlled chaos, controlled or sometimes chaos. uncontrolled chaos. Herding cats, right? So you came from IU, correct? Right. Indiana University. That's is that where you did your fellowship? Yeah, I did all my training at Indiana University, and then I left uh, and went to Geisinger up in Pennsylvania. Uh, I was it. there for about seven years. Then I was recruited back to Indiana University, uh, and I spent uh, three years there. And then I was recruited to my current position at uh, Virginia Mason Francis from Health uh, as a different role altogether, as an administrative role uh, in charge sure. of the whole cardiovascular service line. Sure. Um, and through that process, let me ask you, you know, you've evolved into, you know, I, I think a leader, a thought leader in EP around, um, I think a lot of things you're focused now is around his bundle pacing, right? It, it seems to be a passion of yours and I think some of your peers as well. Um, and, you know, who, 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 do you, who in your life has been sort of impactful, right, as far as an impression of electrophysiology, um, whether it's through your fellowship or through just um, interactions of peers over the time you've spent in EP? Uh, great question. Um, one of the big reasons why I went to Indiana University is uh, because uh, uh, the people there, um, uh, those of who are in EP world know who Doug Zipes uh, is and my mentor, John Miller. Uh, really early on, even before I started doing residency itself, internal medicine residency, uh, I was attracted to EP just because uh, of the kind of people who are there and their passion for it and, and their incredible knowledge base. So I was fortunate to do all my training there for a total of three, six, seven years. Uh, and yeah. throughout those seven years, got a lot of exposure to EP working with, with uh, especially with John Miller, who's my mentor. And that's where my passion of physiology, uh, he's the ultimate physiologist is what I always call him. And uh, incredibly smart guy, knows his uh, medicine inside out, not just EP, he's a great doctor, knows uh, everything, a little bit of everything really well, can, uh, and extremely astute, and one of the kindest guys, and incredible teacher, and so you can't find a better mentor than that. So that's where I built uh, my background, and one of my first jobs, interestingly, why I'm an admin uh, or I have my admin genes in me when I was looking for a job at that time, this was around Obamacare back in 2008. And I started looking at uh, the balance sheets of all the hospitals, large oh. healthcare systems to see which one was doing well from a profit standpoint, <laughs> that if I took a job and I went there, uh, first of all, I wouldn't be laid off. And secondly, <laughs> uh, things won't change drastically. And that's how I stumbled upon Geisinger. And Ended up going to Geisinger, my uh, colleague there at that time, Google, uh, uh, BJ Raman. Uh -huh. uh, happened to be there at that time. He was there for three years prior to I went there. And uh, 
we built a great relationship. Uh, and within six months of me joining there, he kind of one day walked up to me and said, hey, are you, would you be interested in doing some conduction system pacing with me? Uh, he had dabbled in it for the year prior and actually had been working with industry a little bit of helping design a sheet and, and, and so on. And so I said, yeah, sure. And it sounds great. Uh, makes sense. Let me do it. So my first three cases, I always tell this to everybody, were all what we call selective hispanol pacing. Uh, yeah. It's not easy to get selective hispanol pacing, but within 10 minutes of starting these cases, all of them are uh, incredibly successful, great thresholds. So I look at him and say, this is crazy. Why isn't everybody doing this around the world? <laughs> so that's how my adventure started. I can tell you since then, I don't think I've gotten three straight cases of selective hispanol pacing. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy because it's anatomically, there's a lot of variations of permutation based on which the responses uh, occur. But uh, I think that's where we started and uh, we both were very passionate about it. I still remember the days I'm doing a case and I'll tell our lab staff, hey, call, call Google right away, tell them to come up, uh, tell, come take a look at this or he'd call me in between cases. Nice thing about our hospital was everything was kind of everything right there. Our lab was upstairs, our clinic was downstairs, our hospital was right next to it. So we're always amenable to each other. Anytime there was something interesting, he'd call me or I would call him. And slowly, we, we built actually a big practice of conduction system facing. Within two years, essentially, we're doing conduction system facing in everybody. And this is about a decade. Oh, wow. and, uh, and from there, uh, we saw some incredible uh, physiology uh, that we never thought about, changed our whole perception of what the cardiac conduction system is. I, I used to send these to my mentor, John Miller, and... Uh, I mean, this is totally novel to us, never expected these kinds of responses, never saw these kinds of responses, never knew the conduction system could behave this way. And then after that, uh, we got together and we started putting all of our data together and start publishing. Uh, yeah. It's a little rough upfront uh, because it's a difficult concept for people to understand, uh, yeah. it's terminology and all that, but it's come a long way now. And once we got our first publication in it, uh, which a large series and, and, and since then, I have gone, took a little detour going into administrator role. Google has carried that torch and really built uh, 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 an incredible program there at Geisinger, with, especially with conduction system pacing. You guys are having a symposium coming up here in October uh, in Seattle. I think it's October 28th. It's your actual sixth annual, right? Uh, uh, pacing symposium. And is this the first time you're hosting? It's always been in the Midwest. Is that correct? Typically, it's been in the Midwest, just out of convenience sake. But this year, since I'm in Seattle, we wanted to do it in a different location. Yeah, uh, be on the West Coast a little bit. Try to. Go, uh, we've never done anything on the West Coast, so try to uh, get the West Coast crowd involved as well, and and also Asian crowd. It's closer to fly from Asia to to the West Coast, so sure. that's the reason why I'm doing it this year. So, so the focus uh, for this symposium is really about the his pacing. Is that is that the primary focus, or um, maybe share a little bit about various topics and things you're hoping people take away from this program? So, the primary focus is on conduction system pacing. So, uh, okay. all forms of conduction system pacing, whether it be his bundle pacing, left bundle bench area pacing, and so on. But uh, it's not just primarily the focus either. We're talking about all aspects of device care, including. Uh, yeah. Uh, whether it be lead extractions, whether it be leadless pacemakers, whether it be new algorithms of biventricular pacing, whether it be remote monitoring uh, uh, aspects of it, sure. uh, and so on. So it's uh, to have an overall perspective on where device therapy is going, 
with uh, a slant definitely towards uh, conduction system facing because most attendees are interested in, in the conduction system facing aspect of it, but we're trying to make it more about the physiology of facing, uh, all aspects of facing. Yeah, yeah, I know that the, you know, it's all synergistic, right? And how, how impactful are those things when somebody comes in, in a clinic and uh, has an output of a higher voltage for whatever reason, and you're sitting there working through these different things to optimize that pacing lead for conduction, I, I left the industry before this all took place. So maybe maybe share a little on that, just understanding, you know, how do you even identify that that patient has where the lead is placed? Like typically it leads in the heart. You don't really think about it, right? Absolutely. And that's one of the challenges of conduction system pacing. But going back to starting with remote monitoring, uh, one of the things we always emphasize to people, there's a procedural aspect to it and there's a long-term uh, management aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's important not to trivialize how important the long-term management aspect of it is, because if it's your yeah. purpose as a patient, all the patient cares is what's my long-term outcome from it, not for my procedural success. If my procedural success is good, but I'm not able to maintain that outcome throughout, it's meaningless to me uh, yeah. at that point as a patient. And remote monitoring has become a huge part of our, our of EP, and it keeps growing and growing, especially now with conduction system pacing. What's unique about conduction system pacing is it's truly physiological pacing looking for physiological responses. Mm-hmm. If you look at myocardial pacing, it's an all or none phenomenon. It's just either you capture, you don't capture. Right. And all of our algorithms and devices and, and even remote monitoring, the way it's been built is around that platform. Mm-hmm. And now with growing conduction system pacing, there's a lot more nuances to pacing, whether you're actually recruiting conduction system or not. Uh, uh, what are your thresholds? How do you set your uh, management algorithms? If it's his bundle pacing, it may be a different. Left bundle range area pacing may be different. Sensing algorithms are a little different. And we're really evolving into a different field when we look at pacing and its requirements, which are going to be quite different than your traditional pacing. And yeah. all this has to be built into uh, um, a remote monitoring system because that's the only way we can bring all these patients back every three months to clinic and, and do EKGs and, and, and set parameters and see if they're capturing, not capturing, and, and, or, or if they're getting physiological capture or not. And, uh, and companies like your company are going to become more and more important to us of how to partner together to try to see how do we build these algorithms in, in, into this? What are the kinds of things besides just the device algorithms? Uh, what are the trends that we're seeing? One of the nice things about having these kinds of remote monitoring systems are now that our entire uh, 10 hospital system is on one system. So yep. I can search real quickly, what is the trend of conduction system facing uh, in our system? What are the things, the early signs we're seeing, whether it's a sensing issue, or the pacing thresholds going up, our capture yep. management algorithm switching because uh, because some issue, are, are, are we over-sensing, under-sensing? It gives us the ability now to look into this that we never did before because all we had was these would come in through proprietary company-based web bases, and then we'll put them into Epic and type in, but there's no way for us to actually look at this. Now today, I can just go uh, on the computer and, and within two minutes, three minutes, search all the patients that I did conduction system pacing on how long ago were there? What's their battery voltage? What are some of the uh, issues that we're having with sensing? And more yeah. importantly, it's not just us. I belong to a large organization, Common Spirit Health. It's the largest nonprofit healthcare system in 21 states. 
Yeah. You can imagine the power of having something like this now across the entire enterprise where we have one platform on which we can see early trends of lead failures, early trends of uh, uh, issues that we can identify before anybody else can, even if, uh, because companies usually get the feedback from us saying that there's a problem. And that yeah. now we have that ability at a very large scale uh, to do this with these kinds of systems. So that's the best part about it. And also customizing these, you know, having the ability to say, hey, can you build an algorithm for me so I can look at my PVC count? Yes. Uh, yep. My percentage of pacing count, so I can screen for pacing and dyscardiomyopathy in my patient population. And, yeah, and yeah, we're excited about the future and, and what data holds for for our, our customers and um, electrophysiologists like yourself. Our organization really wants to be driven and provide a, just a different level of insight into the data and optimization for your clinic. You know, it starts with care, right? It always starts with providing care and and then maximizing that reimbursement opportunity for your organization to be structured in a way that you can staff up and execute the care. Those, those come in, but we're, we're heading into this phase as an organization of we're doing well, we're supporting a lot of clinics. Now let's start looking at what, what's this data telling us and what are people really interested in learning about? Because we, we now we're starting to have a lot of data. Um, so we're excited about the future and, and what we can do and how we invest our time to help continue to grow an industry, right? Not through therapeutics, but um, through data and insight. I want to make the point here. I just talked about patient care and research and looking at uh, trends and, and, and all that. These kinds of programs are going to become even bigger uh, part of what we do in healthcare, where there's a lot more automation, there's a lot more uh, data management, uh, and, and really dealing uh, with, with all this amount of data that's coming in every day and we're getting bombarded. Uh, eventually, these are the kinds of systems that allow us to actually do our work uh, and, and, and focus on things that are important uh, and not get distracted with the amount of data that's coming through and, and not having enough resources or lack of resources and all that. So automation is going to become a huge part, uh, at least in the EP world, uh, with devices for sure, uh, yeah. in the long run, I tell our guys all the time, our device clinic only gets bigger. It will never get smaller unless, <laughs> yeah. unless, unless the hospitals dismantle. We're only going to inherit more and more patients and follow them lifetime. And that's just not implantable devices, but uh, in the near future, wearable devices are going to be part of it, which will open up a, a whole a can of worms uh, that that are is going to be in much more of a challenge to actually deal with that data than even our own remote data that we get through our own implantable devices. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a whole world. I, I know you've talked about this in the, in the past, you know, the future, right? The, there's a lot of opportunity for uh, the wearable world and what it can lead to to provide better care for patients. Um, and, and that's exciting. Yeah, we're getting overwhelmed with it now, and it's it's not even in its infancy. So exactly. you can only imagine 10 years from now what the amount of data that's going to be coming from wearables that we will have to incorporate into our uh, healthcare. And and it makes sense. Everything else we do in, in, in our world is in, in real time. So healthcare also uh, will evolve in that direction, especially with wearables and, and ability to uh, monitor ourselves on a, on, a, on a continuous basis because our, our risk profile changes instantaneously. So I think all that data is just what, where we don't do uh, are not good at is how to handle all that data. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Well, it goes back to automation and it's not the, to say 
you know, we're going to automate and interpret every EKG. I, I think the sensitivity and specificity required to replace uh, a human's interpretation, it's not there, right? I think we're a long ways away from that, actually, of being what would be tolerable in the implantable world, right? You think about these implantable devices that have a sensitivity and specificity of 99.95% kind of thing. Like it's, it's silly uh, uh, how well these devices work. <clears throat> and you got to have that confidence that if an algorithm is going to interpret an EKG, I mean, you know, this company like ours is getting raw data, right? We would have to scrape PDFs to get uh, uh, an image, right, uh, of, of an arrhythmia. But, but there's a lot we can do on automating, you know, all those things you hate to do, right? Scheduling, uh, arriving a patient in, in the EHR, orders and, and rescheduling and calling patients. And, you know, those types of things can be instant automation. And then you can get to your secret sauce, right? Your secret sauce is, and your clinical staff has a high clinical acumen of, I know if this is SVT or VT, right? And it, you know, let them do that and focus that time versus, you know, 40, 50% of their day is just, you know, non-clinical. And, and so those are things I think we can impact and we're trying to impact on a day-to-day -day now. And, and EHRs don't always allow it, right? You know, they don't, it's not, they weren't built necessarily for the intent of today and uh, what we try to do. So, you know, those are things we work pretty closely with to try to create a lot of automation. Um, and, and allow the clinic to just focus on what they do best, right? And that's provide care and interpret EKGs. Yeah, e EHR is just a huge repository of information. And it, it is always going to be, it's very bulky and very cumbersome. You're gonna to have to have these kinds of third-party software that, that are specifically configured for device-based therapies that, that, that will have to be incorporated into your practice. And, and it's essentially, taking all the clutter that comes in and actually basically sorting it out into what's important and what's not important. Vast majority of devices work just fine. And do we need to really devote hours on end each day of going through those and sifting through those? Or can we bin them as, you know, with high confidence that these are normal and actually use our, our, our time and resources to spend time on the ones that are abnormal right. and, and pattern recognition and things like that. that's how I tend to see technology rather than being replacing uh, yeah. doctors and, and everybody else because uh, I don't think we're anywhere near that remotely close to uh, and but what what it would enable me is spend more time on important issues rather than looking at all this clutter and sorting myself out of you know spending 10 hours of taking all the normals aside and then reading the abnormals. I, I think it was Medtronic, you know, recently came out with an update on their loop recorders. And um, I mean, they have 15 years of data, right, on ILRs that they were able to look at noise or artifact, I think, and optimize some of that, that information and, and mitigate it from being passed forward, right? You know, there's a lot they can do and they're solving it at the root, you know, cause, right? They're at the root of the problem versus downstream looking at a solution like a third party to, to wean it out. You can wean out um, the, the repetitive natures, but you know it's much like that repetitive AFib noise. Well, if, if they're in chronic AFib, then turn the alert off. Like that's gonna fix the problem. Um, you know, it, those are things I think that are really cool to hear and to see the manufacturers look at those things and because they have 
every ounce of the raw data available to really make good diagnostic decisions with tools and software to enable better care. A good example, exactly the point you just made, for example, if there's AI automation built into this, uh, you know, when, when, when I'm, for example, downloading something and reading, or if the uh, device clinic nurse is downloading something, uh, for example, emerge, you could prompt that patient has been in AFib for the last uh, six months. Yep. Uh, consider programming device to VVIR or, or, or something else uh, to so conserve battery, for example, or to reduce alert, false alerts, false alarms, yeah. and things of that nature. I think that's the kind of help where I see these kinds of systems uh, because it, we all know that intuitively that's what we should do, but in a busy practice, uh, when you have uh, hundreds of these each day, uh, you're not bound to think about those kinds of things saying, oh, it looks good, looks good, oh, that's just a false alert, that's just AFib with RVR, and then uh, nothing to worry about, then move on. But yeah. taking it to the next step of saying, how do I reduce that clutter even further so in the future, I'm not getting these false alerts. And uh, just thinking of the bigger picture of, I'm putting all this data, my, my, my device volumes are only going to grow with time. So how do I minimize the clutter? So I have the opportunity with this encounter right now to minimize that going forward with this particular patient by turning off those alerts. Uh, the future, uh, even though it may seem overwhelming at times, uh, I, I think is very bright for us because of finally yeah. integrating technology into healthcare and, and, and using it wisely, uh, not just... Just because we can integrate technology, we integrate technology everywhere, doesn't doesn't help. EMR is a good example. Uh, initially, on first pass, everybody thinks EMRs are great, but they add a lot of burden of work uh, mm -hmm. to providers uh, today than what they used to. Uh, and there are layers and layers and layers of work that, again, reduce your overall efficiency because you're spending, if you're spending in your clinical work where you're supposed to be taking care of patients, especially as an EP, doing procedures yeah. or, or taking care of patients and seeing them in clinic. If you're spending a good portion of your time on EMRs, that tells you something that you know, something wrong with what we're doing. If that's how we're allocating our time, um, yeah. our expertise on computers, rather than actually taking care of patients and doing what it, we're doing. It all circles back to the patient, right? It, 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 because, you know, I think early on when I was really wanting to start merge, my, my observation of these in-office checks Got, became just, I, I got annoyed with it, right? Working in the device company and then seeing patients show up. And, you know, just like uh, any device rep would, would tell you, oh, well, you know, the case got delayed. Like your clinic is running. The case got delayed. The rep, the rep's running late to the clinic. The staff is like, where are they? They don't show up. So the rep shows up, yeah, hour or two late to clinic. They got 20 people stacked in the waiting room waiting to see you. And it takes all of three minutes to check a device, right? To see if this thing actually is working and working appropriately. And, and, and ultimately what, what the impact of that patient, like, you know, some of them are in wheelchairs. People took, you know, their kids took their time off. They're circling a parking lot to find parking, getting a person out of the car, put them in the chair, bring them upstairs. Now they're gonna wait an hour. And then they're looked at by a device rep maybe for three minutes. It, it, it just, it's grossly offensive in its nature of, of how that operates. And that was always something I just wanted to shift, right? And, and get more remote adoption, which, you know, this is years ago. So it, it's changed, but still goes back to that patient shouldn't have to go through all of that to just come in to change a button, right? On that device. And, and that's one aspect, uh, clearly for a patient, uh, 
resource utilization in your own system, uh, you know, uh, actually having patients in clinic that really need to be there so that you're allocating your resources properly to patients who actually need care right then and there rather than things of this nature. But also more importantly, uh, I can tell you the difference between uh, using a system like Merge and not using one before an Epic. Uh, I'd get an alert, uh, I'd look at it. Uh, I, it won't be that I have to either scan it into Epic or somewhere I have to go find it. Now I have the ability to look at every single transmission on the patient instantly, uh, going back and looking what the patterns are, what the trends are, and yeah. you know, where things are, and, 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 and reading these instantly. Uh, because of this now, uh, we can read our, uh, our alerts and remotes and, and, and all that. Uh, Literally, I could read a uh, hundred of these uh, in, in you know, probably tens of minutes before uh, there. And I can not only just read them, I can actually compare and look and look at the tracings and look yeah. at the EGMs and all that. Before it was more of, yeah, they're normal. If there's abnormal, okay, how abnormal <laughs> did your state in there? Let me go find it. Let me see what it is. Now I can look at every single event if I choose to. Not that yeah. we do. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it gives you that ability to instantly look at something and actually look at the core of the problem, not just somebody reporting something or what the device said, but actually looking at the EGMs yourself. Yeah. Uh, and it's really changed how we handle device patients. And, and I'm sure it's improved their safety because they're uh, much quicker now to react, much quicker to also exclude things. For example, of noise before somebody gets a shock, we can instantly look at it, not just make the assumption that they go to the ER or, oh, you had a shock, it's okay, but nobody ever looked at the, uh, you know, remote to see that's actually lead fracture. Yeah. That, uh, not it's okay, you need to actually go into the emergency room right away before you get another shock. So I think that these kinds of systems uh, helped us tremendously. And, and as we are able to customize them and build more AI and, and intelligence into them, I think we'll improve uh, just uh, our overall satisfaction patient satisfaction and especially our employee satisfaction in terms of dealing with this all this uh, uh, incredible amount of data that's well put yeah no, uh, that's, that's a great way to wrap this up you know so uh, two other things here outside of the hospital what do you like to do what's your hobby give us a uh, day like, of uh, on a saturday <laughs> This weekend, uh, I love to race. So I'm going for my weekend race in Portland, car racing. Okay. And that's been my passion. So uh, this weekend, I'm leaving on Friday. I'll come back Sunday night. And so it's um, the entire weekend. It'll be with my team uh, working on our cars, uh, racing, doing our lap times, qualifying, talking, uh, giving each other advice and, and, and where, what, what to do, where to make the right turn, at what speed to enter, where to brake. Uh, and all you do is focus just on that and helping each other. And, and it's, 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 it's an incredible feeling. That's really cool. I had no idea. Uh, uh, that's fantastic. The last thing here, we have a little rapid fire questions. Um, super simple, um, but thoughtful and fun. So I'll start. There's four. Um, favorite part about being an EP, which I think we already know. But Absolutely. Curing patients and uh, telling patients that I don't have to ever see you again. <laughs> I'm sure they want to see you though. Yeah. Uh, as an EP, what couldn't you live without? Man, that's a tough one. Uh, it depends on what your specialty is. If you're a device guy, you're going to have a different answer. Yeah. If you're an evolution guy, you'll have a different answer. I'd say uh, not so much I could live without, but I would say my team, the people. Yeah. 
That's yeah. what makes the difference. I always say I can have the shittiest equipment in the world, pardon my language there. Exactly. Uh, if I have the right people, that's all I need. I can have the best equipment in the world and not so good people. I'll be miserable no matter what. Everybody that we've asked that question to, it has been the people aspect. Not a widget, not anything. It's been people. Very cool. Um, something you know in your career now that you wish you knew before. There's so many, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, just uh, understanding the scale of EP and how quickly it's grown. I don't think any one of us envisioned when we were training 10 years ago, 15 years ago, or 15 years ago in my case. Uh, how different it would look 15 years later because mm -hmm. it always helps to think what the future is going to look like and plan for it rather than react to it mm -hmm. and I think we're still in a phase in our field where we react to things based on what's happening rather than thinking far along that this is where the future is going to be and building towards it but I think it's very helpful to know where your future is going and plan for it rather than react to it fair well put last question what would you be doing if you weren't working in healthcare? I'd be racing cars. <laughs> no, I always wanted to be actually in Ferrari or Mercedes. In no, Indy. I, was, I, I grew up watching Indy 500. So I'm a big Indy car guy. So yeah. I, would, I would love to race. Uh, probably if I, if I had a choice, uh, I probably would. Uh, if I had the talent and, and the choice, probably would race. That, that would be my first passion. Right on. Uh, I'm going to ask one more. What's the fastest you've ever gone? in a car fastest i've clocked uh is about 190 miles an hour oh that's uh, fast on a track yeah that's fast well dr gopi i greatly appreciate your time uh thank you so much for this this was enjoyable we learned a lot today and uh look forward to seeing you here in october thank you very much thanks for the opportunity todd all right buddy thanks for tuning into the pulse for more information about Merge and how to improve your cardiac device management, visit Merge.com.